Well, you can open to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. If I would encourage you, if you don't have your own Bible with you, to grab that one there in front of you. Dan was joking earlier, but there was something special about singing together at the Youngren's house the other night uh, at the Christmas party. Um, you know, and that didn't have anything to do with the fact that Gary King and I were belting out our angelic voices as we shared a hymnal together. But no, there was something sweet. I kind of wondered, like, in what other in what other world do two grown men who can't sing hold a hymn book together and just sing out to the Lord together? I think that only happens in the church, but I. You know, as we sang those songs that Kevin and Carla prepared, as we sang the songs that just kind of came in as, as requests from others, there were a few things that kept jumping out to me. One was the, the titles and the descriptions of Jesus that we sang together. Another was the work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And a third thing that, that kept kind of coming up as a recurring theme in these songs was how we ought to respond to that. In fact, we can just kind of look at one of the songs we sang this morning and ask those three questions. Think about that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What sort of things did we sing about who Jesus is? Well, we said He is the, the everlasting Lord, that He is incarnate deity, that He is the Prince of Peace, that He is the Son of Righteousness, kind of borrowing from Malachi chapter for there. Who is Jesus? Everlasting Lord, Prince of Peace, incarnate deity, Son of Righteousness. And what has He come to do? Even in just that one song, He has come to reconcile God and sinners. He has come and given us second birth. He gives light and resurrection and eternal life. And how should we respond? Well, we give glory to Christ, we proclaim His name, and we adore Him. Or think about, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel, the Son of God, God with us. He's the rod of Jesse, referring to Jesus as kind of that promised king that we talked about last week. He is the desire of nations. And what did he come for? What, what did he come to do for us? To ransom us from sin, free us from Satan's tyranny, disperse, remember this line, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight, right? He conquered death. And he's bringing in a kingdom where he will put to death envy and strife and quarrels, and he will fill the world with heaven's peace. And how should we respond? Rejoice, rejoice. We respond to who Christ is and what he has done for us with rejoicing. So when we gather and we sing together about Christ, whether this morning or like we did the other night, we are expressing this, this real, deep-seated joy, true happiness that flows from the recognition that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, He is God with us, and He has come to set us free from the tyranny of sin. So as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 1, we'll see that those themes, you'll, you'll see those themes that we've been singing, they weren't just kind of plucked out of thin air by some creative, artistic lyricist, right? They come straight from the pages of Scripture. So we're, we're calling, if you have the notes, uh, point number one, Mary's, quote, scandal, right? Quotes around that word scandal if you don't have the notes. Okay, look there in verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just and a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now verse 18 opens the text with, with, with sort of a, an introductory, he's sort of laying the groundwork, he, he's, he's sort of describing for us the setting of what is to follow. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now last week, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, and we saw kind of the continuity of, of God's promises going back all the way to Abraham and the promise that he gave to Abraham and the promise that he gave to David and how the genealogy sort of traces this promise all the way down to Christ. So we saw this, this continuity between the Old and the New Testament. In fact, we saw that these, these promises were fulfilled in such a such a spectacular way that many in Israel kind of missed that Jesus was the yes and amen to all of God's promises. In the passage we are studying this morning, we see a a bit of discontinuity between the Testaments because we see that something fundamental is changing in the way that God is relating to His creation. Matthew intends to record for us what we might say is the, the origins of Jesus, that's what that word birth means, the origins, the beginnings of Jesus. Okay, so we know that the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, He's eternal, right? No beginning, no end, always existed, always has, never will cease to exist either. He was in the beginning with God, John's uh, Gospel says, and all things were made through Him. So He is the Creator. He is not creation. Therefore, He had no beginning. So, when the Eternal Son then humbles Himself by taking on Himself on full humanity, something new is happening. Something drastic is changing. So when we speak about the, the birth of Jesus or the origins of Jesus, we're talking about the eternal Son entering His creation by taking on the full human nature like you and I have, yet without sin. And this is what's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. We, we, we refer to this often as the Incarnation. Right, the incarnation of Christ, sort of the, the taking on of flesh. Here's one definition that I found helpful. Incarnation is the term that refu- refers to the supernatural act of the triune God, whereby the eternal divine Son from the Father, by the agency of the Spirit, took into union with Himself a complete human nature apart from sin. As a result, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and forevermore exists as one person in two natures. From the point of the incarnation, forevermore, one person with with full divinity and full humanity residing within Him. Jesus did not diminish who He was in coming to this earth. In fact, all He did was take on the fullness of His humanity. And that's what God is up to in our text, describing this incarnation of Christ. But Joseph is going to need some convincing 
that that's really what's going on, right? Because what he knows at this point in our text is that his fiancée has come up pregnant and he had nothing to do with that. So as the reader, right, we, we sort of have this inside knowledge. We get clued into the fact that this is by the Holy Spirit. And we'll kind of think about that more uh, here in a moment, what it means that this is by and through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But our text makes really clear that Joseph does not understand that yet. He doesn't understand. He's, he's unaware. So Matthew draws our attention then here to a couple realities. One, Joseph and Mary are what was called in, in this, this culture, betrothed to one another. Now, many of you know this, many of you are aware of this, but in, in ancient Israel, that was, that was a legally binding pledge to one another, but it was a step short of being fully married. Right? So, so that's this legally binding stature is the reason verse 19 will refer to Joseph as her husband, even though they're not yet fully married. Right? It was that strong of a bond that they were called husband and wife. If you were going to break a betrothal, it required divorce. Right? Imagine you had to go to the courthouse before you got engaged. Right? You didn't have to go to the courthouse until like three days before your wedding. Well, that wasn't so in ancient Israel. And imagine if you wanted to break an engagement to be married and you had to file for divorce. So this was a much stronger pledge than our contemporary idea of engagement. It was almost, you, you, you might say it was like being, uh, in, in many ways, married uh, legally to one another without having lived together and consummating the marriage physically. That's what the betrothal period was. It was usually about a year. The, 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 the woman is still under her parents' roof, and there's this year of betrothal, and then at the end of that year, the husband goes and kind of ceremonial, ceremoniously, there we go, gets his, gets his new bride, brings her to his house, and then they are married in the fullest sense, including physical consummation of that marriage. That's why in verse 18 it says, before they came together. Before they came together. That is, before he took his wife into his home and consummated that relationship, that marriage. So the marriage, again, would take place when the husband would go and get his wife, and then they would come together in all the ways that a married couple should. Right? So, so Matthew is very, very clear, and we'll see again even at the end of this text, very, very clear. Before this happened, right? She comes up pregnant. And that's all Joseph knows at this point. Or at least from our perspective, that's all he believes. You know, we aren't told anything about what Mary said, right? I, I, I would imagine that Mary maybe tried to explain what, what God was up to and to explain herself, but it's hard to blame Joseph if he did not understand at that point. They're only... In Joseph's mind, there's only one explanation. Mary has been unfaithful. She's been with another man. And so the text says that Joseph, being a righteous or a just man, decides that he's going to put her away quietly. Okay, so Joseph, you know, with, with the information that he has, 
right? He cannot, he will not just kind of go along. He will not minimize what has happened. He, if he were to just uh, say, okay, well, whatever, we'll just, we'll just deal with it. It would have been for him, especially in this culture, to, to kind of uh, be identified publicly as guilty, right? So he's going to put her away, but he's also going to exit. That's like divorce, all right? Um, but he's going to exercise compassion on, on her, right? He's not going to publicly shame her the way he could have, but he's going to give her, if you read like Deuteronomy 24, give her a certificate of divorce and formally end this betrothal and, and any subsequent marriage that was follow, going to follow that. All right. So that's the quote-unquote scandal, right? Because as far as Joseph is concerned, this is quite the scandal. It's over in his mind, right? But as he goes to bed that night, an angelic messenger tells him the truth about Mary, and more importantly, this angelic messenger tells Joseph the truth about the significance of the child that she now bears. So secondly, we see uh, the the. Holy Spirit-empowered miracle, God's miracle in verses 20 through 23. Look there. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this angelic messenger arrives in, in a, a, a dream to Joseph. He is, the, this angel is the servant of the Lord. Right? He's not coming with his own words. He's not coming with his own message. He's coming with the message that he has been given by God to deliver. Right? So, so what, what's the message? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That's, that's kind of like the first command in the text. Remember what we said earlier. The, the, the sort of marriage would be formalized when the husband would go and take his wife home, right? Don't be afraid to formalize the marriage with Mary, at least in one sense. Right? We'll see there's another sense in which it wasn't formalized. So the, the angel is saying, do not divorce her, do not put her away, but instead, marry, marry, all right? So, so that's kind of the command, you need to do this, but what, what becomes really significant for us is the reason why the angel says this. Right? He doesn't say for, for because everyone makes mistakes, you know, whatever. He, he says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Right? What's really important about the text is the reason Joseph should not put her away, and that's because she has conceived by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Right? You may remember way back in Luke chapter 1 when we were walking through that, and Mary asked, how can I, a virgin, bear a son? How can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. And the answer is consistent with what we see here. The answer in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
And the shadow, uh, you know, the, the Almighty will work in you. And so what we see in Matthew and in Luke, the consistent testimony of the Scriptures is that the Holy Spirit, right? We talked about the Son being the second person of the Trinity. There's, there, there's three persons and one God, right? Sharing the same divine nature or essence. The, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, And he fashions Jesus in the womb of a young woman who has never known a man. In other words, we might say that he didn't have to create anything about Jesus' deity, right? Or or the son's deity. He he didn't have to do any work there. That's that's pre-existent. What he did is he fashions the, the, the human nature of Jesus. This is the work of the Spirit, a miraculous and a supernatural work accomplished by Him. You know, the, the, the ministry, one of the ministries of the Spirit is really to magnify Christ to the glory of the Father. So, so we don't, we oftentimes are talking more about Christ and more about the Father because that's what, that's what the Spirit does. You know, think about 2 Corinthians 3.18. We asked when we walked through that text, how do you know the Holy Spirit is working in a church? Is Christ being magnified to the glory of the Father? Not if we're running around like crazy or, or the music really moved me emotionally. The way you know the Holy Spirit is working is, is Christ being magnified to the glory of the Father. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is by the Spirit. So we're beholding the glory of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. So what the, the point I'm making is, it's not unusual then for a church to magnify Christ to the glory of the Father, but here I think we should, we should take a minute. We should thank and glorify the Spirit for His work in the Incarnation. Right? The Father sent the Son. The Son humbled Himself by taking on a, a human nature like ours without sin, and the Spirit knit His human nature together in Mary's womb. That's glorious. The Trinity at work to accomplish the incarnation that's eventually going to lead to our salvation. So the angel continues then in this this same track there as he kind of unfolds the message there in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice in the text that the name of Jesus is tied specifically to his mission. That's his name, right? You shall call him Jesus for or because, what will he do? He will save his people from their sins. Now, I remember when I was a kid, my mom had this like printout. It kind of had like an artistic background to it, but it had my name, Kyle, and it's from this, and it means this, and you know, it looked nice, and, and it was cool, and I, I couldn't tell you today what Kyle means, you know, and so I, I just remember having that as a child, and you know, it, the reality for me, it doesn't really matter what my name means, right? It, it didn't determine who I am. It didn't determine anything about why I'm here. My name could mean encouragement. It could mean anger. I don't know. Whatever. It, there's no real connection there. The, my name has no predictive power is what I'm saying. 
It has no prophetic meaning whatsoever. It had no bearing on the person I would become. And in that sense, my name, your name, uh, we could be named any number of things. But when the Lord's messenger says his name will be Jesus, right, because of this, we're right to say then there's significance in the meaning of Jesus' name that's going to point to his mission, right? So then we ask, naturally, well, what is what does Jesus mean? What is the name of that? What is the meaning of his name? Well, Jesus is the, you may know this, be familiar with this, but uh, Jesus is the, the Greek form of the, word, of the name Joshua. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Right? So we see from the opening pages of Matthew that, that Jesus is this, this long-promised one that has come to bring salvation to His people. His name shall be Yahweh saves, for He will save His people from His sins. What's amazing about Matthew is he's totally unafraid. And, and, and if, you, if, you, if you know what we believe at this church, you, you won't be surprised by this, but Matthew is totally unafraid to take references about Yahweh, the Lord, in the Old Testament and apply it directly to Jesus, right? Yahweh saves. Jesus is going to be the one that saves his people from his sins. So we learned last week that even the Old Testament anticipated that Jesus would be the Savior of of His people, but that His people would encapsulate more than just the Jewish people. Right? We learned that Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises, including the the promise given to Abraham. So when it says he, He will save His people from His sin, we're talking about this, this people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless before God. He has come to save for Himself a people for His own possession, that He might be glorified and that the Father might receive praise. So why did it matter that Jesus became incarnate? Is it just a creative story? No, it was in order to save. It was in order to save us. You know, we've learned a lot about, you know, who Jesus is simply by studying his genealogy and thinking about his eternal existence, thinking about how he humbled, he humbled himself by entering his creation through this miraculous conception work of the Holy Spirit. And now in Matthew, we see the purpose for this for He will save His people from their sins. God has told us plainly in Scripture what it means for Christ to come. What we have here is is the revelation of who Christ is. He has told us who He is and what He has come to accomplish. So what I'm getting at is this. We don't we don't define Jesus for ourselves. right? Here we have a very clear, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. He's the eternal son of God, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. And now, so, so we don't get to then sort of give our own definition of who we think Jesus is. 
right? How offended do you get when somebody does that to you? You only think you're my supervisor. I'm going to treat you like you're my employee. You would be utterly offended. Yet so many presume to define Jesus for themselves. But thankfully, Jesus does not, and the Scriptures do not leave it up to us. We see here clearly that He is the God-man who came to save His people from their sins. We see His person, and we see His mission together, clearly laid out for us in Scripture. You might think about it this way. Jesus has not come to simply add to our comforts. He has not come to sort of aid you in having a, 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 a better version of yourself. He has not come alongside you to say, let me, let me help you achieve your goals, your dreams, your wishes. He has not come to, to help you self-actualize or to boost your self-esteem or to fill your life with great experiences. He came on a mission to save you from your sins, to save us from our sins. The reality is that even as you look at that wording, we need to be saved from our sins. We see two things. We needed both deliverance and we needed pardon. Right? We needed, in other words, to be set free and we needed forgiveness. Right? We're not only guilty before a holy and righteous God because of our sin, and, and as Jeff prayed this morning, because of the sin of Adam even, as the whole human race was plunged into sin. We talk a lot about forgiveness of sins that's found in Christ, and rightfully so. But I think there's another aspect in our passage that's sort of highlighted for us, that we are not only guilty before Him, but we are ensnared, outside of Christ, we are ensnared by the power of sin. We were captured, we were enslaved, and we were in need of rescue. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, and and I think this is fitting, not just, oh, it's not just this loose connection. The author of Hebrews says, this is why Jesus had to be made human. Okay, listen to how the author of Hebrews connects the incarnation and this delivering work of Jesus. He says, since the children of flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. One of the things that Jesus came to do was to free you from the power of sin and death. Yes, he has come to bring forgiveness. The way he accomplishes freedom is through bringing you to God, reconciling you to himself through the offer of the forgiveness of sins. And in that, he breaks the enslaving power of sin. And I wonder if you're not a Christian this morning and you're finding yourself just exhausted with failure. I wonder if God has brought you here this morning to see that Jesus Christ has come not just as an example of how to live, but as the one who can save you from your sins. I wonder if He's allowing you to feel the weight of your sin, the guilt of it, and the defeat, so that you might cry to Him and find salvation in Him alone. See, I think the more we realize that our most fundamental problem is the power and the consequences of sin, 
I think the more we realize that our most fundamental problem is the power and the consequences of sin, and then, and then recognize that Jesus has come to defeat that and to offer forgiveness, the more we will love Christ. Right? The more we recognize our sin is our greatest problem and the fact that Jesus has met that greatest problem, the more we love Him, the more we'll desire to be in His Word and to see Christ in its pages, and the more we will become thankful and grateful to Him because we recognize He is and has done everything we needed to be brought back to God. As we kind of keep, keep walking through the text, right? it's actually, I think, hard to know. There, there's no qu- quotation marks in the, in the original Greek text. It's hard to know when the angel's message ends and the explanation of this word begins. Does that make sense? So at some point, the angel quits talking, and Matthew starts kind of explaining what's going on. In most of our Bibles, uh, those quotation marks are at the end of verse 21. All the angel said is, she will bear a son. Um, Actually, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. End quote. Begin Matthew's description in verse 22. I think it probably makes more sense to, to think that the angel's quotation just kind of keeps going here. The angel, I think, and this isn't going to really significantly change the way we understand the text, right? But all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? It's, it's likely, at least in my understanding, that the, the angel goes all the way through the end of verse 23 there. Maybe Matthew's words are there in princes. What does Emmanuel mean? Maybe that's where Matthew kicks in and says, well, that means God with us. So either, either or, right? Either Matthew or the angel, right? They're both mouthpieces of God at this point, right? Matthew's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The angel is giving the message of God one of these two, both mouthpieces for God, uh, point to what's happening here as the fulfillment of Scripture in Isaiah 7.14. Right? It's saying, this is what was prophesied all the way back in Isaiah 7. What is it? That a virgin shall conceive. We've seen that in Mary. And that his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I don't know, when I first was saved and I started reading the Bible and it's like, his name shall be called Emmanuel and his name shall be called Jesus. He's actually called Jesus. What's, you know, I was kind of confused about that. But really what we see, even, even in other examples, like, like Solomon had sort of a title name. His name was Solomon, but he was titled. This, this Emmanuel is more of a title. It's, it's a description of who he is. And his name is God, his title is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, as you read scripture, right, there's no greater blessing. There's no greater joy that can be conceived of than, than God dwelling among his people. And if, you, if, if that doesn't sound like blessing to you, you've got a diminished view of God. You've got a low view of, of who he is. 
Because as we understand God rightly in all of his glory and all of his kindness and all of his justice and all of his attributes, there is no greater blessing, there is no greater joy than for God to dwell among his people. And that's a theme that, that runs from literally Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22, right? For literally, you know, we say, oh, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, this isn't, literally, that's true. Like God is with his people Adam and Eve in the garden. And then Revelation 21 says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. From beginning to end, God desires to dwell amongst his people. Now we know there's a lot that went on in between those two passages, right? Where God is walking in the garden and now he's got a renewed people, new heavens, new earth. What happened? Well, sin alienated man from God. Yet Jesus here is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He He has come to dwell among his creation. And this point's not just, I think, Jesus coming but to his, his work in reconciling us to God. Here's, what I, here, here, here's another way to think about it. Look back in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? The question in my mind, who is they? Who, who is the they in the text that will call his name Emmanuel? Emmanuel. It, it certainly wasn't those who rejected Christ, right? They did, not, they did not title or treat Jesus as Emmanuel. They didn't recognize him as the heaven-born Prince of Peace like we just sung about. So, so who is the they that gets to announce that God is with us? Well, look, look at the end of Matthew really quickly, Matthew 28. He is God with us. They shall say his name is Emmanuel. Look what look what God promises, Jesus promises there to his disciples. This is obviously the Great Commission. At the end of it, he says, And behold, I am with you always. Speaking to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's well, the disciples certainly are included in this. They, they, they get to say God is with us. They experience the presence of God through uh, the work of Christ and through the Holy Spirit. We might say it this way, that it is, it is His people. right? You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sin. They shall say, they shall call His name Emmanuel. Right? Who's the they? It's His people. It's His people who have experienced the forgiveness of sin who can say, God is with us. Notice at the end of Matthew 28, it's not just that we get to look forward to Revelation 21. right? We do get to do that. But Jesus says to His disciples as He sends them out to, to go preach the gospel to the nations, I am with you always. 
from this point on, I am, I am with you. And he is with us. He is our Emmanuel, even now, even as we look forward to the, the, the culmination of this work and being in God's uh, presence. We might say it this way. By the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ. If, if you're a Christian this morning, you are in Him, and He is in you. We are united with Him. You, you might say, God has united Himself with humanity so that He might be united with those with a human nature like ours who come to Him in repentance and faith. That you might be in Christ. One author said, why, why did God do this? Why did God do, why did He come incarnate? In other words, He says, why did the Word become flesh? He says, the principal reason underlying all the other magnificent reasons that God the Son united Himself to our humanity is this, that by the Holy Spirit we may be united to Christ and so enjoy His fellowship with the Father forever. Now as we think about the, the, the fact that we are in Christ, that He is with us even now, we get a sense of why we sing the sort of songs that we sing. We get a sense of why we rejoice together this morning. Because Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel, God with us. Right? Charles Spurgeon said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. There is no joy in this world like knowing Christ and being united with Him by faith. He says, The more we understand it, the happier we are. So the miracle of Christmas is not just a virgin that a virgin conceived and bore a son. It is that the Son is Jesus, the one who has come to us to free us from sin's penalty and sin's power. He has come to unite us to Himself, to dwell among His people through the Holy Spirit, and to bring us home one day where the dwelling place of God is with man. And there's no more death there. There's no more tears. There's no more suffering. There's no more sin. That's why we rejoice. So we saw Mary's quote scandal. We saw what God was really up to and, and what He revealed to Joseph. And the third thing we see is Joseph's obedience there in verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Right. So following this sort of divine revelation, this angelic messenger, Joseph did exactly what he was told to do. He said one, the first thing he was commanded to do, take Mary as your wife. What does he do? He goes and he takes her as his wife. What do we see in Joseph? We, we see that he actually believed God. He believed God. What a, what a night for Joseph. Right? Went to bed thinking his soon-to-be wife is no longer his soon-to-be wife because she's been unfaithful. He woke up knowing he's the adopted father of the Messiah who's come to save the world. What a night. In fact, if you remember back to the genealogy, it was the line of Joseph that was traced back through David and through Abraham. That's why the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David. So Joseph believes God. 
and understands that, that he has a role to play in this as, as the one who is in the line of King David and Abraham. You know, you might, we could say it this way. Jesus is physically, in one sense, Mary's son. Legally, Joseph's son as he will adopt Jesus. But fundamentally and eternally, he's God's son, right? And so Jesus, Joseph now sees and understands what is going on. As bewildered as he must have been, he obeys. But there's this contrast in, in the text, right? He took her as his wife, but he did not know her, right? That's an Old Testament euphemism. Think, think Genesis. Adam knew Eve, and they bore us on. Right? To know is to be uh, one flesh intimately. He took her into his home, but he did not know her until after the birth of Christ. So Matthew, once again, returning to the miraculous conception of Christ, making it a point, this is not Joseph's baby. He did not know her until after Jesus was born. So the fact that it's so, so emphasized here, it's emphasized in other places, we would say the doctrine of the virgin birth is not uh, oh, really, we might say, virginal conception. Um, but that, that doctrine is not take it or leave it. Right? This is not like, oh, well, agree to disagree. Why does it matter so much, though? Why does it matter for, for Matthew to sort of make the point then quote an Old Testament about the point, and then come back to the point. Why is he again and again emphasizing the miraculous conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit? Well, maybe we can wrap up our time together this morning by kind of reflecting just, just quickly on a few ways or, or a few reasons why this is such a fundamental doctrine. I would say, one, it... it simultaneously shows us the uniqueness of Jesus, yet the full humanity of Jesus. All right, so we see in, in this, this work of the Holy Spirit, in Mary, the uniqueness of Jesus and the full humanity of Jesus. You know, God may have certainly could have come up with, with a different way to do this. But it's a way that, that we can sort of understand his humanity as one who was born like we are, and his divinity as one who was conceived in a miraculous way, unlike us, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth teaches us that Jesus is like us in every way, except for our sinfulness. Like, like God created. Adam from the dust of the ground, right? So the human nature of Jesus is formed by the Holy Spirit. Now, what we also see that he's unique, right? He's not just another one of the guys. I had a friend in college, he had a shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus, man, he's your brother. He's something more than your homeboy, Right? He's unique in that he eternally existed, yet chose to unite himself with the fullness of humanity. And so the union of this, the, the full uh, divine nature, the full human nature, 
It equips Jesus to be the only one who can fulfill the sort of promises that we looked at last week. To be the Davidic king, but a king that rules forever. What does it take? It takes the God-man. Right? To bring blessing to, to all the nations, what it takes, but, but to come through the line of Abraham, what does it take? It takes the God-man. In the incarnation, one thing we see is that Jesus becomes for us what the Bible calls a second Adam. And here's what we mean by that. When Adam was created, Jeff prayed it this morning, had, didn't know I was going here. The Lord did but, and worked it out, right? The, Adam was a representative of all humanity. But he failed. When he sinned, we all sinned in him. So we all stand guilty before God. And we, we, we all are incapable of working our way up to being counted righteous in Christ. So, so what do we need? We need another representative. We need another man who can represent us. But we need a man who will not fail in his representation of us. We need, we need somebody that can perfectly keep God's will. Well, that's Christ, the God-man, can represent us because He's God and, and, and can be perfectly able to do that. Because he's without sin. He obeyed in every way. And since he is a man, his, his obedience might be credited to you if you would turn to him and trust in him. And his representation of you, not only in his perfect life, but in his substitutionary death, secures salvation for all those who believe. Only Jesus could do this. Only the God-man can do this. And that brings us to another reason the virgin birth matters. We see God's wisdom on display. Man, even as we walk through that last point, like you see things that we would never be able to come up with on, on our own. We are staggered by this plan to send Christ into the world this way. I'm, I think of Paul's words in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Another reason the virgin birth matters, the virgin conception shows us that salvation is God's work and not ours. This wasn't even dependent on Mary and Joseph. They were both told what's going on. Likewise, your salvation is not dependent on you. Right? Imagine how crazy it is to think that everything we just looked at in, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit in fashioning Jesus, the unity of, the, of God and man, His name shall be Jesus, for He shall save His people from His sins. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And, and we study all that, and then God says something like, and now they're going to have to play their part. They're going to have to contribute to their own salvation. They have to clean themselves up before they can actually come and receive this gift. It, it, it's crazy to think that God would go through these lengths and then require you to sort of clean your own life up before coming to Him in repentance and faith and receiving the gift of salvation. We see here that, that salvation is God's will by God's design, by His initiative, accomplished by His power. And contrary to that, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing we could do. Completely and utterly dependent on God. And the Spirit who, who fashioned Jesus in the womb to, to shine light in our hearts 
so that we might see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I find myself keep coming back to this line in our statement of faith. I just, I just think it's so relevant. Man has no recuperative powers that enable him to recover himself. There's no power in us that would allow us to accomplish our salvation. And therefore, our statement of faith says, he is hopelessly lost. That's why we needed Jesus to come. That's why we needed rescue from our sins. And only Emmanuel could bring that about. Let's let's end this way. Jesus is exactly who we need him to be. Jesus is exactly who we need him to be. I I don't know about you, but sometimes we think we need things that aren't actually things that we need. Jesus is exactly who we need Him to be. He has come to accomplish exactly what we most needed. To secure our salvation. To pay the penalty for our sins. And the reality is, the question we can leave ourselves with this morning, what else could we need if Jesus is indeed our Emmanuel? Let's pray. Lord God, thank You. We know the text. We know the story, Lord, but we just pray that we'd be staggered anew by your goodness and by your wisdom. Lord, it amazes us that you have accomplished what you've accomplished, that you planned it, you sent the Son, the Son humbled himself in taking on humanity, and the Spirit worked to form his human nature. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.